All right. So welcome to our Spring Semester 2023 podcast episode for our course, History 390, The Digital Past, Doing Oral History in the Digital Age. Today is Monday, April 3rd. 2023. My name is um, Katja Herring, and I'm the instructor, and I'm teaching the course in collaboration um, with Laura Crossley as the TA. For this week's discussion about historical podcasting, I'm delighted to welcome our guest speaker, Jim Embuskey. Jim Mambuski is a historian and senior producer at R2 Studios, the podcast division of the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media at George Mason University. At R2 Studios, Mambuski produces, creates, and hosts narrative history podcasts for general audiences. He is the executive producer of the Green Tunnel podcast and is developing Worlds Turned Upside Down, a new series on the history of the American Revolution. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about your plans later on. Embuskey's own scholarship centers on the era of the American Revolution with a special interest in Scottish emigration during the period, loyalism and transatlantic law, the British Atlantic world more broadly, and digital history. Prior to joining R2 Studios, he directed the Center for Digital History at Mount Vernon's Fred Smith Library, where he was the producer and host of a podcast, Conversations, at the Washington Library, and also with Jeanette Patrick, co-created and co-wrote the narrative documentary podcast series, Intertwined, the Enslaved Community at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Jim, welcome. It's such a pleasure to meet you online, and thank you so much for agreeing to be our guest speaker today. It's my pleasure, Katya. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you. As you know, our course is online and asynchronous, so in preparation for our conversation, my students have submitted um, really many thoughtful questions for you on our Slack channel, which I will ask on behalf of the students, and then we can go from there. That sounds great. They, they all asked some really great questions, so I'm kind of intimidated here. <laughs> <laughs> no. And before we begin, since not all students may be familiar with it, what is the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media, and what are the R2 Studios? So the Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and New Media is 30 years old, actually, uh, this coming year. And it was born 30 years ago from the brain of Roy Rosenzweig, who is a professor of history here at George Mason University. And the idea being, how can we leverage technology to help research the past and tell stories about the past? So it became one of the premier sites of digital history in the country, uh, really alongside uh, a lab at Stanford University. And it's gone through uh, many different kinds of iterations over the years from uh, building digital archives in its early years to producing tools like Zotero, which is a bibliographic piece of software. And nowadays doing data-driven history like bills of mortality or religious ecologies. And then now uh, in the last year and a half, R2 Studios. And the idea behind R2 Studios is how can we leverage podcasting and podcasting technology and our talents as historians and our training as historians to tell stories about the plat, to tell stories about the past, to tell complex stories about the past, but in ways that are accessible for public audiences. Uh, and so we were very 
uh, generously funded by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation with the idea that we would take that seed money, build out the studio, and really find ways of sustaining it over the long term by not only creating great uh, history podcasts, but also figuring out the business model necessary to sustain a show like, or to sustain a studio like this and the positions behind it. Thank you so much for this background. So I'd like to get started with the question. Can you tell us how you get started with historical podcasting? Uh, for me, it was kind of by accident and by, kind of by the nature of the job. Uh, so as you said at the top of our conversation, I used to direct the Center for Digital History at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Uh, I arrived there in June of 2019, and one of the components of the job requirements was to host the podcast conversations at the Washington Library. Uh, and that's an interview style show. Uh, and I, I had fortunately, you know, I'd done a lot of teaching in my time. And so I was already adept at talking with people and asking questions and being in dialogue about history. But in terms of the technology, um, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and uh, for the first two weeks, I had someone helping me, and then that person quit to take another job. And so I had to learn all of the audio skills to figure out how to actually do podcasting, including you know how to set up microphones, how to edit in what's called a digital audio workstation, like Adobe Edition or, or ProLogic, um, all these different types of skills that I hadn't really uh, considered before. And then when Jeanette and I did Intertwined about a year and a half later at Mount Vernon, really that was an education for me in how to write differently for a different format. Um, you know, for the interview show, I always did a setup uh, that was about a minute, minute and a half long. But when you're writing a script, a narrative script for a historical series like Intertwined or like the Green Tunnel, the show that we do here at the R2 Studios, you have to... Um, really learn a different form of writing, how to write succinctly, concisely, but still with all the meaning that you need to convey to the audience in ways that they will find compelling. And as you know, some of your students may well know, uh, academics aren't known to write in the most uh, deliciously um, prose-based manner. And so figuring out how to create tension in the narrative and the story you're telling will also grounding that tension in the evidence that you're reading is uh, has been a quite an education and so you know for me as a uh, i came into this as an adult and so one of the the missions we have at r2 studios is how to train that next generation of of uh, historian podcasters how to work with graduate students to uh, you know write in a variety of different ways you know they on the one hand they can write for academic audiences but then when we work with them, how can we take the ideas that they have, one, to tell a story, but then to actually write a script that will serve the needs of that story? Thank you. So this actually leads um, into the next question, and that is really about what would you say are the biggest differences between producing a podcast for an academic audience versus a general audience besides obviously the use of technical jargon or do you make that difference yeah we absolutely do and it's a really terrific question and so i'll, I'll say at the outset you know at r2 studios our goal is to make 
podcasts for general audiences, but there are podcasts that are geared towards academic audiences. And really, at the beginning of any project, what you have to think about is who is your audience, and that will dictate how you approach it. So if I'm writing a journal article for my peers in the academic world, or if I'm producing or I'm on a podcast that I know is geared towards academics, then I know that there is a certain level of expectations that I must meet to satisfy the peers in that side of of uh, of the audience. And so, you know, absolutely right. And, you know, we don't have, always have to use technical jargon, but when I'm, you know, writing for an academic audience or, or speaking to one, you know, I'm going to be talking uh, much more about historiography or the history of history. What's, how have previous historians written about a topic before? That way I can justify my intervention in the literature. Uh, what is my newest take on the evidence or my reading of the evidence? Uh, and how does that stand in contradistinction to how somebody else has read that evidence in the past? Um, and so I have to satisfy a certain number of uh, questions that I can anticipate academic, academic audiences asking. With the general podcast, you know, they don't necessarily care about historiography, although you can use that to your advantage. You know, it's really important, we think, for audiences to understand that history is not simply a collection of facts, but is a collection of facts that are interpreted to understand why things happen the way that they did. And so we we do occasionally, we'll talk about how historians argue over this about uh, a particular topic. And right now, for concrete example, in my own field of early American history, there is a big debate about how much the fears of the British um, moving against slavery animated American rebels to join the American Revolution. Uh, there are some historians who say, actually, that factored quite a lot, and it helped move along a lot of people, particularly in the Southern colonies. Other historians say, no, probably not a whole lot. And so we have to think about when we're approaching a question like that, who are we speaking to? And in the case of a more public audience, we, we can find ways to to convey that complexity, but we do it in a storytelling type form. Uh, that is the way that people like to consume uh, narrative history podcasts. Uh, and uh, we can still have those sort of robust conversations, but in a way that is uh, more appealing to a much broader constituency. Thank you. Since you mentioned the term narrative podcasting, can you explain what the genre, genre entails? What is it? Great question. Um, a narrative podcast is at its essence a story. Uh, and there are a number of ways that you could actually approach that. Um, for example, a, a historian named Mike Duncan hosts a very popular series called The History of Rome, in which he writes out a narrative of any given topic related to the Roman Empire or Republic, and then uh, records it into a mic. Uh, so that's one method of, of writing a narrative and, and telling a narrative podcast. The way that we approach it here at R2 is that we have narration um, intermixed with contributors from expert historians or figures who happen to be present at any given historical event that we're talking about. So think of it as a, uh, a Ken Burns type documentary where there is a narrator and there's a bunch of talking heads uh, uh, and surround that with music, surround that with sound effects. And we try to 
not only convey the story that we're telling in a narrative form, but also use music and sound effects to kind of heighten the emotional state and put the listener in the mindset of the moment that we're talking about or the, the people we happen to be exploring at a given point. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So since you mentioned the production process, I was wondering, how do you prepare for the podcast? I can imagine that's a very involved process. And how much time does it take? It, it, it takes a lot of time and it varies by show. And so I'll, I'll kind of give you two examples. Um, so the Green Tunnel is the show we're currently in active production on right now in publishing. And it's a history of the Appalachian Trail. And Mills Kelly, who's the director of the Rosenzweig Center, is the host. And he is also the expert on the Appalachian Trail. So we rely a lot on his expertise to not only set uh, the tone of the series, but also what topics we're going to cover. And because my colleagues and I are not experts on the Appalachian Trail, we follow his lead and then help him flesh out his vision for each episode. So, you know, for example, we have a very important uh, episode coming up on the history of race in the Appalachian Trail. And Mills himself has done a lot of research, a lot of archival research on this question. Uh, but then we had to sort of go out and figure out who are some other individuals that we might want to talk to to help uh, bolster the claims that he's making. So from start to finish, if from an episode like that, where uh, we are producing uh, in support of uh, the host's show, you're looking at about probably seven to eight weeks of production from uh, beginning to put words on a page or a or treatment of the episode to identifying and then interviewing the participants, um, going back and figuring out which are the best clips we're going to extract from those interviews, writing a script, uh, and then actually the, the, in some ways the hardest part um, is the audio um, editing because sometimes you get really good audio, sometimes you don't get so great audio, and you have to wrangle with the audio and get it into a listable shape so that you can begin to construct the episode itself and then think about music, sound effects, things like that. So for a show like that, six to eight weeks um, for an episode. Now, um, Worlds Turned Upside Down, which is my show, it's a history of the American Revolution. Um, it is a in some ways a much larger show than the green tunnel only because we are projecting this out over the course of five seasons with 10 episodes each per season and so and we're we're dealing with a known event that has a, a, you know a known sequence and so you know mid 1750s through the early 1780s and trying to figure out then what is the story we want to tell what's the through line throughout that particular series, and equally important, who are we going to talk to? Um, and so just to give you an example, um, this was a show that I've been thinking about even before I had started at R2. I had written a treatment of it back in April of 2022. Oh my gosh, it's been a year now since I... Uh, uh, and so, but when I got to R2 Studios in October of, uh, October of 2022, we began active production, and a lot of that began figuring out, okay, what are the episode titles? Uh, what are the episode um, uh, 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 summaries going to be? What are we going to talk about in each episode? Who should fit in with that? 
And that took about four or five months before we actually started interviewing in February of this year. So if you think about it this way, um, a show that we're sort of starting from the ground up is going to take about 12 months, uh, 12 to 18 months to actually get off the ground to where people can actually hear it. Um, and so it's a lot of work, um, but it's a lot of fun work and you get to talk to a lot of really fun people while you're doing it. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful to get a realistic sense of how much labor it actually takes and mm -hmm. how much preparation. That's um, really good to know. Since you mentioned it's a lot of fun, so what aspects of a work do you enjoy the most? Uh, I, I think a lot of it is the collaborative process. You know, it's a very collaborative center, uh, as you well know, and, and so is the studio. Our, you know, particularly in the Green Tunnel, it's a show that we also involve students in. Uh, so Haley Model, who uh, did the first draft of the Native Persistence episode as one of our graduate students. She's written three episodes now. So working with a dedicated and talented team of people, I think, is the most rewarding aspect of it. But then also um, getting to learn from your colleagues in the historical profession, you know, people whose books you admire but never really have gotten to talk to before in a serious way, you know, besides maybe the casual hello at conferences, but, you know, getting the chance to spend an hour and 15 minutes with them, really uh, asking them um, questions about their work, uh, inviting them to uh, translate their work into a more accessible form for those public audiences, uh, and then sharing that with public audiences once you've got it all together. Um, so it's it's a team effort, um, you know, and there are various levels of teamwork that that take place on different shows that we've got going on um but really it is a uh it, it is a team effort as a very collaborative effort okay thank you um and so what would you say are the biggest challenges of the um, historical podcast production it's a great it, these are all great questions this is a super great question and so if you hear a podcast on by NPR, say Throughline or one of their podcasts, and you hear the end credits, you'll hear a long list of end credits. People who are producers, executive producers, writers, audio engineers, audio editors, sound mixers, things like that. In our case here at R2 Studios, um, really all of those roles uh, exist within about three people. Uh, so at R2, the biggest challenge that we have in relation to producing historical podcasts is is uh, ensuring that we have the required expertise and the, the time to actually do it. Because uh, it's very easy to like take on a bunch of projects and then you run into trouble and you can't do them all. But, um, you know, it, particularly Jeanette and I here, we are kind of a, a, I guess you could say a newer generation of historians who who have what I would call vertically integrated skills in that we are trained historians who can do audio production, who can do sound mixing, who can do script writing and do all the things that an NPR type show normally employs, you know, many different people for, uh, but because we work in the humanities and because, you know, part of the, the mission of the studio is to ensure that historians are at the end of the day, uh, the ones driving the ship, um, we have a lesser labor, labor available to us. Uh, and so that, that means uh, I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> uh, but at the end of the day, it's actually part of the fun 
of it too, is figuring out how are we going to make this work? How are we going to accomplish the goals that we set for ourselves? How can we teach students to do it too? Um, you know, because it, our jobs will get easier when there are more people like us that can do this work. Yeah, thank you. Since you mentioned teaching students, I was wondering what opportunities are there for students at, at George Mason University for undergraduates to get involved either with the R2 studios or, you know, some, some of my students are doing their yeah. own podcasts. So what is their, your advice for them? Uh, it's, I find it remarkable here at George Mason that there are many opportunities to actually get involved in podcasting in some shape or form. Uh, you know, at, our, at the Rosenzweig Center, we tend to work with graduate students, but, and I'm new enough that I don't quite know, you know, what opportunities there are for undergraduates yet, but I can certainly imagine a scenario where, you know, we have an undergraduate intern or something to that effect. But what I think is really cool, and we have discovered this since um, we have run into some issues with recording in our own space because there's been construction on our building. And so we've been like searching out through across campus to find alternative spaces to record. What's amazing at Mason is that there are various departments that have uh, audio pods, audio recording equipment, um, opportunities for students in the mix, which is in Horizon Hall to actually go down and record your own podcast if you want. And I believe they've got some tutorials there to work at the radio station, uh, if that is of interest. And there's a very uh, wonderful TV studio that also does audio work that I would imagine would be open to having some undergraduate interns. So I, I have to say, I've been quite amazed. I uh, I did my undergraduate at Miami University, uh, which had a radio station for about five seconds. And then I did my PhD at the University of Virginia. And in all my time at UVA, I cannot, I don't think there has ever, there was any opportunity to do this kind of stuff. And so I'm I'm very pleased to be at Mason where you know, we can potentially create opportunities for undergraduates. So that's really great and encouraging to know. And um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's wonderful um, for the students to know there are opportunities and, um, you know, maybe you can join existing initiatives, but also possibly create your own. And um, so. I uh, well, I think that's an important point too, because, and I will say that, you know, we've, in the mix, right? They've got some of the best equipment and they've got equipment like we do, uh, but there's very clear tutorials how to use it. But also the ubiquity of the technology these days and the ease of use is such that because the microphones and your iPhones are so good and because you can download dedicated podcast apps on your phone, nowadays, and I could do this right now if I wanted to, you could record something, you could edit it, and you could publish it all on your phone within the matter of a few hours. Now, it may not be any good, right? But but you can do that stuff, and it begins to um, help your mind start to think about, oh, how I can actually be a creative storyteller, and I've got the tools at my disposal um, and, you know, if you start just as you are writing, when you, you want to learn how to be a writer, you know, you, you read the best writing, learn to be a good podcaster. Well, part of that is, you know, listening to podcasts you admire and thinking about how, you know, you too might be able to do that. Yeah. Thank you. Since you mentioned listening to podcasts, um, do you recommend any specific historical podcasts? What are your favorite podcasts? 
podcasts that you would also recommend to to my students, especially if you don't have that much time. Sure, sure. Uh, there are several I've been listening to as of late. Um, a Boom Town is a really good one by Texas Public Radio on the history of the Texas oil boom in the last 10 years and the boom and bust and the ways that that uh, connected these small Texas towns to the global economy, but also what it does to the local populations uh, there at the time. Uh, that's a really good one. Uh, I'm a fan of some, a lot of interview shows too. Um, the BBC has a great one called uh, In Our Time, which covers literature, history, uh, politics, and philosophy, uh, science, excuse me, and philosophy. And what I love about BBC podcasts in general is they really have figured out how to do the kinds of things we've been talking about at the top of our conversation, take really complex ideas and trust their audience to handle them, but without, you know, sort of being overbearing about the complexity and the jargon and things like that. Um, what else have I been listening to recently? Um, not just the tutors by Susanna Lipscomb is an excellent one. She's a professor at the university of Oxford in the UK. Um, the green tunnel is a great show. <laughs> Uh, you know, the challenge right now is that there is so much content. It's almost like, you know, what Netflix has become. You have to sort of figure out, you spend more time scrolling through trying to figure out what you're going to listen to than you actually do listening. So, um, but there, there's some really good stuff out there. Um, since you mentioned interviewing, I actually do have a question uh, related to interviews, mm -hmm. interviewing shows. And um, here's a really good question. When it comes to doing interviews on your podcast, how do you handle conflict? or controversial topics. And I know you hosted a, a podcast at, at Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. And if there is a conflict, um, do you throw the podcast out or um, upload it so your listeners know what happened behind the scenes? How do you do this? It, it's interesting. I, I will say that I have never had an issue where we've encountered uh, conflict, I think, in the way that the student is describing uh, in terms of something controversial. Um, and I've been fortunate to you know, not have anyone say anything, you know, off color or something like that or, or something uh, terrible. Um, but I think in general, there are, you as the producer have to make a decision about what to do. And so I have heard journalists who produce podcasts talk about that issue. Uh, and there was uh, a particular NPR podcast uh, that, um, well, Radio Lab actually from New York Public Radio. Uh, there was an episode where uh, a guest got upset at the finished episode, feeling that his words had been misconstrued. The producers then made the choice of releasing the entire interview um, as a separate episode, sort of saying, you know, audience, you make up your own mind. Um, I think in general, we probably wouldn't do that in part because one, um, we have, you have to stand by the integrity of our work. Uh, and because we, you know, are dealing less with opinions as we are opposed to dealing with interpretations of the past that are generally reflective of someone's scholarship. We have a high degree of confidence that we are unlikely to misrepresent them. Uh, and of course, that's part of our training, right? You you can't take a primary source and make it say something you wanted to say. It, it You have to interpret it 
the way that uh, uh, is supported by that evidence. Um, uh, two, uh, because we're the, the authors of the work, so to speak, or the publishers of the work, we don't give people an opportunity to review something before we publish it. Uh, externally, I mean. So if there's a guest or whatnot, generally we're not we're not going to give them an opportunity to review something because uh, you know there's sort of an ethical line there about uh, uh, particularly or perhaps compromising the integrity of the work because someone doesn't like the way that they sound, you know, in terms of like actual inflection of their voice or something like that. But uh, and so we've been lucky in that regard not to have to deal with that. But you try to do your homework ahead of time uh, and you try as best you can to have a good sense of who you're interviewing so that you can potentially mitigate any conflict. You know, there's, and I will just say too, like I have a no jerk rule. And so if I know that you are a jerk in the profession, I'm not going to talk to you. And I don't care if you want a Pulitzer, like you're not going to be on our shows. Like that's just the rule. Like, you, um, you know, we, we expect people to be collegial and uh, comport themselves well. And if you are known to be a bad actor or uh, just generally not a nice person, we're less inclined to have anything to do with you. Thank you. That's really helpful guidance and a good strategy to know, of course. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, um, I do, um, since we, um, you know, we are also doing the, you know, interview uh, format and in the context of this asynchronous um, course, I was wondering, how do you, what are your thoughts about engaging with your audience beyond the podcast episode? Um, what ways are there to continue a conversation that you have started? And, um, you know, as, as we, we've discussed, um, you know, doing a follow-up, um, either um, conversation or written Q&A about the Native Persistence episode of the Green mm -hmm. Tunnel, which I think is a terrific idea. But how can you engage with your listener? What, what platforms are there? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's really important because if uh, you can make the best show in the world, but if no one's listening, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so we use a variety of strategies, mainly through social media. Uh, you know, so for example, we're very fortunate here at R2 Studios to have an engagement coordinator who manages all of our social media accounts. And so we, you know, we're regularly tweeting. Uh, we have stuff on Instagram and we talk to people who respond to us in the comments. Um, you know, sometimes uh, social media can be fraught with peril because people uh, sometimes reveal the worst of themselves on social media. We've been very fortunate where we've had generally supportive listeners. And so, you know, when people reach out with a comment on Facebook or Instagram, we'll write back and make, you know, ensure that they feel valued because they took the time to listen to something that we did. And we want to make sure that they know uh, that we're very grateful for that. We have newsletters. We have a studio-wide newsletter, which you can sign up for by going to r2studios.org or one that's specific for the Green Tunnel. Uh, and so we're able to speak to different communities that way. And then being out in public. Uh, I, uh, In addition to being active on social media, I'm always out giving talks. Uh, and you know, we're at uh, professional conferences or public audiences. And so I always make a point to mention the work that we do I always have stickers with me uh, that 
uh, you know, have our, you know, our logos and our show titles and you know, our URLs and things like that. Uh, because uh, in a lot of ways, you, you make the show, but then you got to go out and sell it and you got to sell it hard. And uh, in some ways, that's half the battle. But it's it's fun. You get to meet the people uh, who are listening to your stuff and get their feedback. And, you know, sometimes it's very positive. Sometimes not so much, but that's okay because that helps us sort of calibrate where our audiences are and what we think they might be interested in. Yeah, well, thank you. And so, yeah, as you, um, um, as we're wrapping up um, the conversation, yeah, so what are, what are your plans? What are, um, for any shows, or what are you planning to do next? And is there anything you would like to add that you would like to share with my students that we haven't addressed? Yeah, no, I, th I think we, we've got a lot of exciting stuff. And, I, you know, one of the questions we had talked about talking about was, do you ever run out of creative ideas? And the problem is we have too many ideas. We have, we have so many ideas about what we think we might want to do in the future. And I will say, so immediately what we've got going on is the world turns upside down, which is the rev war show. And that show uh, really takes advantage of recent scholarship to explore how people experienced the revolutionary period in the 18th century. We are uh, next year, we'll be publishing a, a one season series on the history of American anti-Semitism, uh, which will take a look at that topic from roughly the late 17th century through the early 21st. Uh, we're in development of a show right now that explores uh, uh, a lynching that took place on the Eastern shore of Maryland in the 1930s and how that lynching uh, and its rediscovery in the archives in the last uh, 10 years or so has shaped that particular community. Um, one of the shows that I will do next after uh, I'm done with World's Turn Upside Down is probably going to be called the Scotland Sessions. Uh, as you noted, my research focuses on Scotland and the American Revolution. And I used to head up a research project that looked at Scottish court records. And while they may seem boring on the surface, really what they are telling you is about the ordinary lives of people in the 18th and 19th century Atlantic world. And so taking advantage of those unique records to tell stories about how people uh, you know, lived in this period. And then we've got a few other ideas that I won't mention quite yet because they're not ready for prime time. But um, we're very lucky to have a number of good ideas and we we think that people really love them and so we're looking forward to um bringing you to bringing them to their audiences and to your students and you know maybe someday your students can be involved in them well thank you so much um for you know sharing your time and expertise that was a terrific um enlightening, encouraging um, conversation and really appreciate um, that you took a time to um, talk with me and um, with my students in our course. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure.